Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm Eddie Gibbs and welcome to Off The Wall, the podcast here on Anfield Index where we like to give you a small flavour of some of the content available over on the paywall side of the channel at Anfield Index Pro. This show is brought to you in partnership with LibertyShield.com, the perfect VPN companion for all your entertainment and privacy needs, where you can get 25% off everything using coupon code AIVPN, that's AIVPN. You can also get a 48-hour free trial of Liberty Shield today and immediately start encrypting your internet connection. This will stop your ISP from logging traffic and bypass blocks on any geo-restricted or blocked IPTV content. Now, with the coronavirus dominating the headlines, we're waking up to find ourselves in an almost unrecognisable world each and every day. And for Index Pro, we know just how much you'll be missing your sport, and especially so this incredible Liverpool team, who it's most certainly the case of when and not if will be lifting the Premier League trophy. Now, with no games to watch, we wanted to take this chance to share some of the content from AI Pro that we've been most proud of. When we launched the paywall service around two and a half years back, Trev Downey was fortunate enough to be joined by a host of former Liverpool players, legends who contributed to a golden age, uh, a time when winning a league title was almost par for the course. So today on Off The Wall, we're going to kick it off with Jan Mulby's story. Now, as many of you may know, the Great Dane has become a staple part of the acoustic diet over on AI Pro, and we're lucky enough to have Jan on the channel every week for his Mulby On The Spot podcast sharing his wit and expert analysis in the company of uh, Trev Downey. So uh, in the first of our two-part interview, Jan reflects on his formative years in Denmark, his remarkable stint at Ajax alongside the great Johan Cruyff, his transfer to Liverpool, the development of that famous Scouse accent and those on-field highs, including that man-of-the-match performance against Evan in the 1986 FA Cup final. Now, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that you can now get AI Pro absolutely free for 30 days instead of the usual seven. That's something we've just changed this week as we realize uh, people have a bit more time on their hands. So it's now 30 days free instead of seven. To sign up, all you have to do is head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com. There is zero obligation to continue after the 30-day trial, and you can cancel at any point. If you decide to stick around and we can't fathom why anyone wouldn't, then the cost is only £3.49 per month, or you can get the whole lot for £39.99 per year. So some great value there. We'd also love to hear your feedback on this and any other shows from AI Pro. The best way to do so is to join our free Discord community. It's a thriving community of Reds underpinned by healthy opinion and debate. And the place to do that is at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. That's D-I-S-C-O-R-D, anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. Alternatively, you can also relay your thoughts to us on Facebook. Just search for Anfield Index or on Twitter. We're at both at Anfield Index and at Anfield Index Pro. So without further ado, here is Jan Mulby in the company of Trev Downey for the interview part one. Hello and welcome to a new show on Anfield Index. This is The Interview, and I'm your host, Trev Downey. With The Interview, what we want to do is give you all a chance to really get to know some of the luminaries of Liverpool Football Club, to see our great club and their role in it through their eyes. So to begin the series, we have a Danish midfield maestro, a gloriously talented footballer who no less than Kane Dalglish described as the most natural two-footed player that he'd seen. A player rated by Manny, myself included, as one of the greatest to wear the red, and a man who even graced the same pitch, as the legendary Johan Cruyff. I refer, of course, to the inimitable Jan Mulby. Jan, thanks for speaking to me this morning. 
It is all my pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. Really, really appreciate this. Over the years, Jan, I was lucky enough to speak to, you know, the likes of John Barnes, Rob Jones, John Aldridge, Jason McDear, many other people. But you were, I have to say, without making it too weird and putting you on the spot, you were a personal hero of mine. So this does mean a lot. Before we start, can I ask you to clear something up for me? Um, I was a fan um, of too many advanced years, sadly, at this stage. But I never, uh, I saw every game I was possible to see it play in back in the days where we had limited coverage. But I did have to, because I'm Irish, I had to endure a lot of Irish dubious commentators. And there was one guy, one fella, who insisted on pronouncing the names of all the players, foreign players, as we would have seen them, uh, in, as they would have been pronouncing their native tongue. So when everyone else was talking about this beautiful pass, drooling over the latest pass by Mulby, he was acclaiming a terrific ball by Mulbu. Now, I don't speak Danish, Jan, but is that right? or No, it's not. I mean, my my surname, if you say in Danish, you say Mulbu. Uh, ah, so. okay. The boo is kind of correct, but it's the O with the line, so he doesn't quite get right, uh, which, of course, is a letter you don't have in the uh, in the UK alphabet. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad I didn't take him at his word then. And I, <laughs> to, be, to be honest as well, whenever a person says their own name, I just go with that pronunciation. I think that's probably the fairest thing. That's probably do. as close as you're going to get, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if well, I don't know. If you don't know, yeah. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I heard you speak for the first time, it was one of those remarkable things that you don't forget, Jan. You know, you were basically just this instant scouser, this like uh, out-of-the-box scouser. Did, did that have a bearing on, 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 on you letting something like the correct pronunciation of your own name slide, this idea of just like, look, I'm here now, let's do it this way? Yeah, I mean, I think today it's, 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 it's totally different. There's a lot more interest, but in those days I played in a very British game. Uh, and then that's the way it was. Nobody ever bothered to, to, to ask, uh, why the O with the line through and I just let it go. But you, you mentioned the first time you heard me speak, which was obviously on one of those, uh, BBC, uh, programs on a Saturday afternoon, 12 o'clock and, you got a shock. I got an even bigger shock. Yeah. You know, I thought, what's happened here? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it was probably yeah, something like that or Satan Graves or some of those things that we used to watch. Yeah, it could have been actually. Yeah. Watch religiously. The saint, was, yeah. the saint was down pretty quick and he goes, what's the accent all about? I said, I have no idea. I said, but I've got a feeling. It won't do me any harm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and people did seem to warm to you kind of instantly. Did you did you make a conscious decision to try to embrace the the, the culture? Like, was it something that you came across thinking, right, I've got to get straight into this? Or did not did, really? Did, no, not really. I I just think sometimes you fall into. I think as a professional footballer, uh, you, you you kind of think, but I'm going to play for, for for a number of clubs, uh, and you're going to move from one club to another, uh, and it's just going to be that way. What happened when I came to, 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 to Liverpool was that you sort of almost instantly, I don't know whether fell in love is the right word, but you kind of was taken back by so many things and you kind of sensed this could just be different. I mean, let's not forget, I've just been in Amsterdam for two years. Mm -hmm. I love playing for Ajax, but beyond that, I had no connection to, to the city, to the country. Uh, but within being in Liverpool for weeks, there was a connection that, Obviously, I had one where I lived in Denmark, but never in Amsterdam. And then you sense, well, okay, you know, let's go head first into this. Uh, it won't do me any harm because you sense that as much as England is in, in, or as much as Liverpool is in England or the UK or whatever you want to call it, it's also very much out on its own, isn't it? Yeah. So if you can become one of them. It certainly won't do you any harm. For sure. I, I, I did hear a few stories. I, I, I'm not 100% sure if they can be traced back to yourself, Jan, but I did hear things about you basically being uh, dumped in at the deep end in terms of being abandoned on an evening out to go to get to know the locals. Does, is that is that uh, true or, or, or false? That yeah, it is, it, is, it is true. Bruce Gobble, I very kindly thought he introduced me to the local scene and chucked me for the beer, and it never went any further than Bruce ordering the pints, handing it to me, and then he disappeared. And I was left... I was left somewhere in a bar in Liverpool with, with a couple of hundred scousers who quickly realised, not that I was a footballer, but that I was foreign, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they came over and said hello. And uh, and, that, and that was kind of how it all set off. Obviously, I didn't know then what I know today, and I, I was a bit wary uh, because it wasn't a very Danish or Dutch thing for people to walk over to a complete stranger. But you soon realised that that is the norm in Liverpool, you know. If, if they see somebody on their own, They'll always be open and checking that you're okay, and uh, I appreciate that.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a it's a nice way to ease yourself into something. Now there are probably so many people I know for a fact that who hold you in the highest regard, like I do myself, and would be very familiar, well, or at least quite familiar with the the the, the path of your career, but. Unfortunately, as each year passes, I'm worried that more and more of the people that listen to me are getting younger and younger. So for people who are maybe not as well acquainted with your story, would it be okay with you if we just kind of set the scene a little bit? Um, Let's and, start at the beginning, eh? Yeah, basically, that, 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 that old chestnut, let's do it. I mean, when let, let's just take it from, say, the point that you realized, okay, this football lark is for me. When, when was that realization for you? I think it's difficult to say. I mean, we, we were kind of farmers. Uh, we were out in the country. Uh, and in all the age groups that I played in, and I'm not trying to be big-headed, but I was the best player. Yeah. But it was in a relatively small area of Denmark, an area that wasn't necessarily famous for producing any footballers. Uh, so it wasn't until you get to the age of 15, and then all of a sudden you can get selected for for representative teams, uh, and very quickly it became Denmark under 16, and you know you, can, you go to a trial and... Uh, I got picked to, to play in a tournament in Portugal. Uh, and then you think, well, okay, but now I'm going to be playing against all the boys from the bigger cities, from Copenhagen and from Aarhus and Oldborg, and they'll probably be better. And again, without being too big-headed, they weren't. And, and and I came back to Coling, where I'm from, and I think that was kind of the moment where I thought, I didn't think of becoming a professional footballer, but I thought, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able probably to fulfill my ambitions which were, A, to play for Coling's first team, which at the time was non-league, and also potentially to represent Denmark, not just at under-16s, but also under-18s, under-21s. I didn't so much think that, that, that the full national team, but I thought, I've got a chance in the game. Beyond the borders of Denmark, I never gave that a second thought. Sure. Yeah. Well, of course, like, like most people don't at that stage, like, like you say, it's all the, the next goal, the next level, the next whatever happens to be. But I'm, 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 I'm curious. You, you were obviously, uh, well, I'm assuming you were the tall kid. You were you the good, strong physique at that stage. And we know modern football is all about that, but you're a player who's kind of famed for your technique. So, I mean, was, was it a happy combination of the two things that helped you stand out? Do you think? Well, obviously, the way I started Denmark and, 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 and Holland is two very technical countries. So my size, and, and, and I was taller and I was broader than, than most of the boys I played against, but it was never an issue. Uh, I was always regarded as a, as a as a technical footballer. And it wasn't until I came to England, and then all of a sudden I heard the saying, well, he's got a great trust for the big fella. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a professional footballer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's it, to me it was second nature, you know. Yeah, of uh, course. So I was I was kind of a little bit baffled. People go, "Oh, for the big boy, he isn't bad," you know. And I thought, "Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the point." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always thought that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought that people, well, maybe people weren't as versed in 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 football in in Europe in them days as they maybe are today. But I would have thought if people thought I came from Ajax, you put two and two together, and you would probably think. Technically, he, he would have to be okay because that's what Ajax and the school of Ajax is all about. You'd like to think so, but like you say, people don't really think that deeply, and certainly didn't in those days about it. Um, it was it's just a foreign lad, tragically. A, a kind of minor experience of that myself. But I, I'm really, really interested in your big your your big initial move from Calding to to Ajax. I think am I right in saying it was a it was a record fee for a Danish club for a Danish player? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. at the time. Uh, I mean. It wasn't until 1978 there was some kind of professional football introduced into Denmark and selling players was a relatively new thing. Mm. Uh, so I was told when I was sold that it was, it was a record fee for the Danish club to receive for a player. And believe me, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't fortunes. Uh, later on, uh, shortly after I was sold, the likes of Michael Laudrup uh, was, was, was sold to Juventus and, and that eclipsed my fee. But at the time, uh, but I think what helped Colding was that not only Ajax were interested. In those days, the countries that used to be interested in Danish footballs were Germany, Holland and Belgium. And there was interest from all these three countries in me. Uh, and also two other countries, one of them being England, uh, Ipswich Town with Bobby Robson. And also Hajduk split in the old Yugoslavia uh, showed an interest. But once Ajax came on the scene, uh, and they, they watched me for the full year, they, they would have my league games, they would have my under-21 games for Denmark. They were everywhere, uh, and I was kind of getting a little bit impatient. 
uh, 12 months later, uh, they, they, they finally made the move and it was done overnight. Well, I, I, I'm obviously it's, it's a stunning, stunningly flattering to be linked with a club that's had so much, res, you know, success in comparatively recent terms at that stage. But was there a temptation there? Because I know Robs and Zips, which were a very successful team too. Was there any temptation there for you? To, did you flirt with the idea of England at that stage? Yeah, of course I did. I mean, I was brought up in English football, loved English football, and it's, it's, it's the one league that we used to get in the winter months in Denmark every Saturday. Uh, at four o'clock in Denmark, we get a live game. So everybody in Denmark of, of my generation will have a team that they support. So England played a massive part, uh, in, in, in my thinking. But I was also thinking as a footballer, I've never been a professional footballer. I was a part-time footballer. I used to train every Tuesday, every Thursday evening. So now I'm going to go and become a professional footballer. I probably need to learn. And, and that kind of did it for me. If I need to learn, let's go to Amsterdam. Let's go to Ajax. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just flabbergasted at the thoughts that you're walking into it. No, no, as flabbergasted as I was. I, I can I can only imagine. I mean, I'm right in saying at that time, let's leave out the obvious legendary figure that's Johan Cruyff, because I imagine even standing in the same room as him must have been quite intimidating. But at that time, Ajax, you did have Koeman, Van Basten, Rijkaard, Jesper Olsen, am I right? All those guys were there. You had another Danish boy, Soren Lerbe, who Sorry, a year Lerbe. later wow. went to Bayern Munich. Wow. You had another five or six of the guys who were part of winning the European Championships in 1988. Great, great players. Yeah. Uh, like, like Vandenberg and Van Skip and Keith, the big blonde striker, which you will know being, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah from that 1988 yeah. and that, that little header. spinny header. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So honest to God, it was incredible. And for five weeks, I thought, okay, I've reached my ceiling. This is too much. You know, I was, I was very, very good in Denmark and I coped with playing for the various international teams. And by that time, I'd made my full international debut, but this looked like a step too far. The first four or five weeks of training, we trained three times a day, even the games that are relatively easy. I just couldn't, you know, you know, when you think I've bitten off more than I can handle here, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. this is, this is, this is just too much. And then overnight, uh, just before we played the Amsterdam tournament, uh, which in 1982 were Tottenham Hotspur, Cologne, and Acer Alkmaar, I think. And our first game was against Spurs. We beat them 3 2. And you know, when everything could just come together. Yes. And I went, whoa, two days ago, I didn't think I belonged. Now I'm ready, you know. And wow. it was an, am- yeah, it was. It was an amazing feeling because it was the only time in my career. I ever doubted my own ability, and that's not being big-headed, but yeah. it was the only time where I thought, whoa, this might be too much. Well, Jesus, man, if you're ever going to doubt yourself, it's when you go from, like you say, from comparatively small uh, club to surroundings like that with players like that. That must have been, that, that couldn't but be intimidating. And for you to Yeah, no, of- but, but I mean, you, you, you've obviously seen all these guys play. Yeah. You haven't, you haven't seen them enough, uh, but you've all seen them, you've all had memories of them. I trained with them two or three times a day. Jesus, yeah. It blew your mind. Yeah. It blew your mind. Before every training session, we'd play eight against eight in a square of 20 by 20 meters. One touch, two touch. You've never seen anything like it. And I generally thought, you know, for three or four weeks, I just couldn't keep up. And I thought, and big Frank Reichardt, even bigger than me, six foot three, 15 stone, strolled. He was incredible. One of my favorite footballers of all time, 17 year old Mark Coven Baston. And you look at him and you go, and to be fair to Cruyff, Cruyff used to say every single day, point at him and go, that boy there, he said, he's going to be the best ever. We wow. don't know if that would have been the case, because he retired in his, his late 20s for injury, but he was incredible. But let's not forget Lim Keith. You know, he was there in my first year. He was top scorer in Europe, scoring 36 or 38 goals. And then we sold him and people go, why are you selling him? He said, because Marco and Baston is next in line, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah. 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 It was, it was, it, it was absolutely incredible. And of all those people, and like even the, the names you've touched on there, I mean, that's without even mentioning uh, uh, in uh, detail, like you say, lots of other incredible footballers like Koeman, like like uh, like Olsen and and and, and Lerby. Was it is it fair to say that that Cruyff, even at that stage, what thirty six seven at that stage, he was still technically and obviously the the best of the group? Is that fair to say, or is that an exaggeration at that point? No, that is absolutely not an exaggeration, and I think. Johan Cruyff has a mind like nobody else. And that was his strength. It's one thing how quick you move and it's how quick you think. And every time you hear Cruyff speak, he always talks about where the game's played. 
the game's played in your head. Uh, and, and the man was incredible. Even at that age, he, he, he trained relatively little. Uh, he kept himself fresh for the games. Uh, he understood the pressure of being the best player in the team. And he often spoke about that. Yeah. He said, being the best player in the team is not enough. He said, you have to deliver because all the other players look to you and they go, take us, lead us, you know. Uh, so I always understood this thing about, and I sometimes compare with Matt Letizia, who was the best player at Southampton, but never really took him anywhere apart from him looking a good player. Yeah. And I always used to remember back to Johan Cruyff going, your responsibility as a good player is much more than just play well on the pitch. You have to lift all your teammates, you have to make sure you win games. And Cruyff used to say, he hated being the best player on the pitch and the team not losing. He said, that meant that I haven't done my job. And I always thought, you know, fascinating coming from a guy who was obviously in the twilight of his career, but had done everything. And I mean everything, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is a remarkable mindset, that isn't it? It's something to really aspire to. Like the, the idea that you take, almost take your talent for granted and then you go on to the next level and talk about, like you say, how to, how to sort of help other people aspire to be good or the best they can be as well. That's, that's a remarkable mindset. Yeah, it was, it, as I said, it was absolutely incredible. So I had 12 months played alongside Johan Cruyff. Uh, and, and as you will know, and I actually play in various positions. In those days, it was, it was decided by, by, by the number you had on your back. So sometimes I'd be number two. I'd play right back. Another day I'd be number four. I'd play center half. Uh, I'll play number six in midfield. I played most positions apart from left wing, uh, and the number nine up front. Uh, so you learn a great thing. And often, obviously, I came in direct contact with Cruyff because Cruyff had a free role in midfield and, I would often play in midfield and that in itself would be an experience, you know, the, the confidence that he gives you, you know, he would go, don't ever think you're in in trouble. He said, there's always a solution to every trouble. He said, the idea is how quick and how simple can you work out the troubles you think you're in? Yeah. He said, and, and never shift the trouble you're in onto another guy. Solve the problem for the next guy. Yeah, no, you know, no, and, no hospital balls because you're... Exactly, yeah, and yeah. it takes a little while before you go, oh, I know exactly what he means. The fact that I'm in a little bit of trouble doesn't mean that I can just shift the, the, the trouble onto the next guy. So he goes, the quicker and the simpler you can work it out, yeah. uh, the better. Uh, so it, it became a very thinking game. Uh, so 12 months with Cruyff and then an incredible uh, scenario where Cruyff after 12 months and left Ajax to go and play for Feyenoord. Jesus, which, yeah. unless you're really well-read on, on, on Dutch football, you don't understand. I mean, nobody does that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and no other guy would have been big enough to do it than Johan Cruyff. So... I then had the opportunity to play against Johan Cruyff four times. We played him twice in the league. We played him in a cup and we had a replay in the cup. And, and of course, that in itself was also an incredible experience when he came back uh, to the, the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam in 1983, a couple of weeks after he joined uh, Feyenoord. And Feyenoord and Ajax were first and second in the league. And you can imagine the excitement in our dressing room. You know, a load of young players, Van Basten being 17 and you know, Rijkaard and Koeman and me being 19 and all the others. And now all of a sudden we're going to play against Cruyff. And yeah. you just don't know what to expect because you know if he gets it right on a day, we could we could be in for real hiding. And of course, we have one of the most talked about games in, in, in Dutch football ever, uh, a game that we incredibly won 8 to. Yeah, wow, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I'm right in saying he, he did actually nail, nail a league title from the, the, before he finished, didn't he, I think? He, he was there one season, and of course he won a double. <laughs> he does. It's incredible. It's yeah. incredible. He lost 8-2 in the Olympic State of Amsterdam, and then they went on to win the league, and they won the FA Cup, or the Dutch equivalent of the FA Cup. But that's what he does. He does to say, in 82-83, my first season of Ajax, we won the double. We won the league, and we won the cup. Then he went to final, and then they won it. That's what he does. And you should never be surprised. Yeah. Cruyff said or Cruyff did yeah well I'm not surprised yeah. I genuinely believe that there was nothing Cruyff couldn't have done yeah. if he had decided to, to stand for, for Prime Minister or President or whatever you call it in Holland they would have voted them in and the country probably would have been a better place for it yeah, I think you're dead right about that one. It's something really struck me that you said there when you, you know, watching him play and the idea of finding solutions. That's, that was what was always really clear to me about your game was that you had that thing, like I've done minor amounts of coaching and it's a real joy when you come across a kid who seems to have that extra half a second in the middle of the park, put their foot in the ball and find something and you just go, oh, that's a player. That's a player there. And I, I was never that guy. Loved to have been that player, but I was never that guy. But you've always had that. And that was one of the clearest things about you. Like, for example, we'll, we'll skip on, hopefully, in a, in a while to talk about the the 86 Cup final. I mean, you know, some the pass through for Rushy, that kind of thing. You just saw stuff that other people didn't seem to see. Do you think that came from 
exclusively playing in midfield or or exclusively playing with those good with those good footballers or getting a chance to play everywhere on the park like you said i think it was a combination i think you have to have something yeah. uh, you know as a young footballer you're always already formed in a way that you think well this is going to be your main asset yeah yeah so the thinking part of the game uh, was always going to be what i was going to be all about absolutely 100% sure that that was enhanced by playing with Cruyff, but also by playing with some of the others, you know, because they were all great uh, thinking footballers. And although we should, should should never, you know, be too arrogant and, 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 and whatever, but I was never scared of, of any situations in, in, in a game. You know, give me the ball and I'll try and help you. Uh, I'm certainly not worried about that it, that it, that it might go wrong. Uh, and I spoke to Roy Evans about it once and he says, you know, some people think you're arrogant. He said, but on the coaching staff, we'd all decided that you just have incredible self-belief. Uh, and I probably think, and I want to thank Roy for that. That's probably a, a, the nicest way of describing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and an essential part of of playing where you played in the park. Let uh, <laughs> I'm aware we're nearly half an hour in here. We haven't got to Liverpool yet. So the, the move to Liverpool, um, how did you become aware of, 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 of Joe Fagan's interest well, it, it, it had nothing to do with Joe Fagan. It had nothing to do with Liverpool. Uh, my time was sort of up at Ajax. I played there for two years, right? Uh, close on seventy games, and you, as as you know, Ajax is a selling club. Uh, so they just went, "Yeah, it's your turn. Well, we're, we're, we're going to sell you." And I went, "Please, please get me to England. You know, I'm ready for England. You know, mm. physically and you know mentally. And I've tried this professional football now. I, I want to go to England." So they got hold of a, an agent who was quite big at the time, a guy called Dennis Roach. Who represented Ajax in selling players? So he emailed, or sorry, faxed all clubs in the top flight football. Uh, three of those clubs, Crystal Palace, Manchester City, and Sheffield Wednesday, came back and agreed to fee with with Ajax. I spoke to the three managers, uh, which at Crystal Palace was Alan Muller as the caretaker. I spoke to Big Billy McNeil at Manchester City, and I spoke to Howard Wilkinson at Sheffield Wednesday. And the one who sold the idea best to him was Howard at Sheffield. Uh, it sounded really exciting. They were just newly promoted back into to, to the first division. Uh, but he was the one more than the other two who could explain what exactly he wanted me to do, why exactly he wanted to go abroad uh, and, and and buy a foreign midfield players. And uh, I was all set for Sheffield Wednesday. When at the last minute I got a phone call from Liverpool, a guy called Tom Saunders, who was a scout, he was a coach, he was also later a director. Uh, and he said, listen, we've saw Graham Souness, we've been looking around for the midfield player, we can't find one. We would like you to invite you to Anfield for 10 days on the trial. He said, I know it's not the, the done thing. You're a full of Danish international. You're playing Firex. He said, but we don't know you. We don't know enough about you. He said, so you come and train with us for 10 days. He said, or you go to Sheffield Wednesday. And uh, I spoke to some people in the game, including my coach at Ajax, Arthur Moss, who said, trial. He said, you don't have to go on trial. I said, but it's the only thing on offer. And uh, after all, 1984, Liverpool without shadow of a doubt, the best team. Uh, in Europe. So I went, I've made up my mind, I'm going to go to Anfield and I'm going to play a bit of football and hopefully that's going to be enough to impress him. Wow. So this, this, that's a, that's a really, so the policy was you're, you, you are one of the best assets that Ajax had. So they, you are just inevitably going to be sold. That's, that's, that was the model. And so then it was just a matter of telling you to see who would come in. Wow. Okay. That's, 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 that's incredible. So, and even, yeah. and, and, and Tom Saunders turns around and says, look, we don't really, we don't, we don't know enough about you. Let's see you play. Well, I think, I mean, obviously what Liverpool was good at was preparing for, uh, the next player exit and have the next player ready. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, soon as left. And I think that surprised everybody. Hence the reason that they hadn't been looking around for centre midfield players. Of course. Um, so when soon as left, they were caught a little bit short. Um, and obviously then this fax lands on their desk and I could see why they would be interested. Danish international, Ajax, technically good. Uh, I was a big, strong boy and they would have thought, if we're going to buy abroad, let's buy somebody who's nearly six foot two and, 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 and 14 stone, you know, so they went. So I could see where the interest came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, it, but it obviously couldn't go any further than the trial because they probably never seen me play. They could have maybe gone through some videos and, I'd watch some games, but Liverpool's strength at the time was looking at you with their own eyes, getting to know you, getting to know your mentality, and also see how you'd cope with 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 the training. 
So even at the, it was the status of the club, like the, even an established international, a, a double winner, a fellow who's played alongside some of the best players in the world with, with, with a great reputation. You decided, like, say, a really top star who decides to go on audition for a, re- a director who, who directs very rarely, like a big, big director. You just said, well, I'm going to I'm going to back myself here because I want to work with, with, with these people. The worst thing that could have happened was that I would get the train after 10 days over to Sheffield. Of course, and Sheffield, yeah. And Sheffield Wednesday would sign me. Yeah. I spoke to Howard Wilkins, and that was the exact deal we did. He said, if they don't take you, he said, come over here. Uh, so that was the worst thing could happen. Ah, okay. Uh, in the end, uh, certainly short term, it, it, it couldn't have worked out any better. Uh, didn't do an awful lot in the 10 days. Trained a couple of times, but right in, in the middle of the trial, there was a visit to Wembley because we played in the in the 1984 Charity against Everton. Straight from Wembley, we went to, to Dublin, where I played on a Monday in what was my trial game uh, against Home Farm. Uh, this was playing in a game that was deciding my future. And all my teammates since Wembley had been drinking as much Guinness as they could get their hands on, you know, and I thought, <laughs> well, yes, yes, I thought, ooh, they're not taking this very serious. But then I thought, but they're drinking a lot of beers and I'm not. So maybe this is my opportunity to shine. Mm. You know, they won't be able to to maybe be as sharp as I am. So, well, in the end, anyway, it 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 it, it worked. They'd seen enough after the game on a Tuesday. We were flying back to Liverpool. Sorry, we were flying back to Manchester. And I said to Roy Evans, I said, Roy, I said, we'll land at Manchester Airport. Uh, I might as well make my way from there uh, across to Sheffield. And he went, no. He said, we can really do it back at Anfield. The chief executive, uh, Peter Robinson, would like a word with you. And uh, at that time, I wasn't aware of the way that Liverpool Football Club worked, so I wasn't aware that that meant that, that, that they were, were about to sign me, but that was very much the case. Yeah, it, it does seem to be the, the kind of understated way that things happened back then um, from what I've read and what I understand. That's amazing. I actually think I recall... Um, so a kid I knew who was on trials for home farm at that time when Liverpool came over to play that game. That's, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, when, when, so, so, so the season starts, this is 84, 85, just to, 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 to sort of root it for people. Um, you make your debut pretty quickly, don't you? Your competitive debut. Straight away. Straight away. I sign, I sign on a Wednesday and I make my debut on a Saturday, first game of the season. Norwich City away. Obviously a real eye opener. Playing away, uh, 100 mile an hour. Uh, you kind of battle for the right to play. In the end, it was a, it was a hugely entertaining game at the end. The, the, the match in the three all. Mm. Uh, I have to be honest, it, it, the game was played in a in a manner that I maybe hadn't been used to. You know, we certainly didn't have games like that in 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 Holland and and, and not in Denmark. But it was what I'd seen on TV. It was very British. Mm. You know, it, it was very physical, uh, but it was it was very entertaining. I imagine it didn't intimidate you in the slightest. Though you must have looked around you and go, "Okay, these guys are going at 100 miles an hour, but you know, I can I can do my stuff in this game. I can do my stuff against these players." Yeah, uh, we come back to maybe that little bit of self belief. Yeah, uh, and I believed that I could play my game, and I think it took me maybe 10 games before I realised that you also have to adapt. Uh, that that something different is needed. Uh, I can't go out on a pitch and from the first minute expect to be able to play. You have to be part of this fight for the right to play. Uh, so, so I had to change. And I have to be honest, that certainly in my first season, it, it, it took me a while. And I think the strange thing was that for the first six months, the first half of the season, where I more or less played most games, I couldn't play in the European games because I'd signed too late, but I played in most of the league games and I didn't play particularly well. And I felt that after Christmas, you know where things again click. Yeah. And then I didn't play. I played in reserve games, but I didn't play in the first team. I was subbing mo- almost all the games, played a couple of games that meant nothing at the end of the season, but I couldn't get in. And that was the time where I felt, but I've got it now. I, I, I've got the balance of the British game and the game that I bring. And Joe sort of decided not, not, not to use me. And I can, in the end, I can't complain because the team went from a difficult start and Ended up finishing second, lost in the FA Cup semi-final after the replay, and, and of course the final in the European Cup against Juventus. So it wasn't a bad season, but from a personal point of view, it was frustrating. And whatever people say, 
the one thing that matter more than anything is of course it's, it's, it's yourself isn't it? your own feelings I've come to a new country I wanted to play I was desperate to play mm. Denmark had qualified for the 1986 World Cup and I was well aware that with the players we have if I don't play in the team at the club where I'm at I'm not going to Mexico so there was a lot of things on my mind absolutely and we, we spoke earlier on about the the, the sort of the awe that you'd feel walking into the dressing room at Ajax, let's not forget that, as you said earlier on, this is the home of the European champions, the most recent European champions, and you've got superstars of the game who would have been on the TV probably more than even the Ajax guys you would have had. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, had, you obviously you had Dalglish, you had Rush, these are just massive names. You had um, Hansen and Grobbler and Lawrence and all these players who were just so highly rated across the, the continent, as highly rated as you could be. And in those years, it was, if Liverpool didn't win, they were second. That was it. That it was, it, they won or they were second every single year. So you're coming into something that must have been even more intimidating there in the, in the Liverpool setup. I wonder who did you gravitate towards in those early days in terms of... I thought, I thought that was going to be the case. Oh, uh, okay. I, walked into, I walked into a lot of like-minded people at Ajax because we were all young. Right. 75% of the squad was 20 and younger. So we were all starting out on our careers. Then I come to Liverpool, players who've done it all, four times winning the European Cup in the last seven, eight seasons, winning the league every year, as you correctly say, uh, get players that are much more established in the game and you think, okay, this might be a little bit more difficult and awkward. Uh, but it wasn't. Uh, incredible welcome for all the players. Uh, how Liverpool in those days, and I'm talking about the players, used to welcome new players in the dressing room was incredible. Uh, they, they, they really wanted you to do well. Yes, some of them understood that you were a competitor for their, for their spot in the team, but they still welcomed you. Uh, but the one boy, the one man I took to more than anyone else was, was Ian Russ in those early days. We were both obviously relatively young. We were both single. Uh, so we got on like a house on fire. And of course it helps. I didn't become friends with Russi because he was, the number one most lethal striker in the world. I became friends with Russia because we liked each other and we got on well, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so of course, all those things helped. Yeah, I, I, I imagine they did. And as you say, it's it's just a, a happy coincidence that your 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 new best buddy happens to be the most lethal striker on the continent. But it's, so in those in those early days, you're 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 trying to make your way and back back onto the pitch for a moment. That, like you say, it's a season of almost. You know, you, they almost win, you almost win the league. You almost um, almost get to, to to the cup final, which in those days was so much more of a massive massive affair. The season ends, and we it would be absolutely uh, ignorant um, to not uh, acknowledge that the season ends with one of the most horrific episodes in, in the club's history, which is which is obviously the Heysel Stadium disaster, and um, and the, the the upheaval that happens after that, both in the club and 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 I'd imagine in the personal relationships of the players, must have been quite quite stunning. And I, I know the the announcement pretty soon immediately after Heysel, just to get back to the footballing thing, because people have done this in more detail and with more respect. And what we're trying to do here is talk about your your own personal career. But just I suppose first of all, how. Uh, do you do you have any specific memories of that of 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 that um, particular era, the, the the kind of that final and the fallout from it, and leading into to Kenny's appointment as as player manager? Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, obviously we we, we were aware, uh, you know, leading up to the game that there was something wrong. The European Cup final doesn't get the kickoff doesn't get delayed unless there's problems, and, yeah. and we were aware of that. And then obviously after the game, uh, which, you know, we were, we were told by UEFA, we played this game, you know, for, don't for one minute think that it was a decision made by the clubs. It was a decision made by UEFA. Yeah. We're going to go ahead. We're going to play this game. So of course, as professional footballers, that's what we do. Of course. Uh, we lose the game. Uh, and at the time there was, there was some disappointment because we came there to win. Uh, but of course, quickly. There was a bigger picture. There was another story, and we realised that the game it'll be the one European Cup final that'll never be remembered for the results. Uh, subsequently, there were some decisions to be made at the club. Joe Fagan uh, fell under a lot of pressure; couldn't take it anymore. Decided to call it a day. Uh, our first, or the first rumours were that Phil Neal was going to be offered the job as player manager. Uh, but when that didn't happen within the next forty-eight hours or so, uh, then we thought, well, okay, what is it going to be? We 
I think we all realised that it was going to be an appointment from within. Mm. And the reason for that was that it, it had been so successful for Liverpool over the years. Uh, but the sort of boys uh, that had helped uh, Joe Fagan, Ronnie Moran and Roy Evans did not want to step into the hot seat. So very ambitious. The club decided to uh, knock on Kenny Douglas's door and ask him if he had interest. Mm. Kenny said yes. And uh, almost the rest is history. You know, yeah. From a personal point of view, uh, probably the greatest appointment we could have made because I needed to go and see our manager, whether that was Joe Fagan or Kenny Douglas, because I hadn't played enough football in my first year. So when I went to see Kenny about the prospects, he said, you're going to be given a go here. He said, and you're going to be given a real go in a slightly different position, slightly further forward. He said, but there's obviously things you have to do that you didn't do last season, one of them being score more goals. He said, we have a and expectations of our midfield players to score a certain amount of goals. Uh, he said, but you'll certainly be given a, an opportunity to show us what you can do. He said, and then you know you're not stupid. He said, you know how the game is. If if you do well enough, you stay in the team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it strikes me before we move on to that next season, which is so stunning for you, that uh, Kenny takes over a period of incredible stress and tension and actually leaves, much like you said, Joe Fagan left under a cloud of, of, of stress and, and, and pressure that, you know, it just started, it seemed to get to him at the end as well. It was, it was an incredible period of, of uh, highs and incredible lows for the club. But the next season, the one that you refer to, that you talked about, uh, Kenny, and what your involvement would be, I mean, this is a defining season for me as a supporter. I, I watched nearly everything I could possibly see and then rewatched it and rewatched it. And we had old VHS tapes and you recorded and you watched those back and, um, you were the man that year, you know, it was incredible to watch the, 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 this, you just emerge and, and play, play your ball, uh, culminating that cup final performance where you're, where you're just by yards man of the match, winning the double. What an incredible feeling that must have been to be part of that side, Kenny's first side. Um, well, obviously the, the, the idea, uh, wasn't that 85, 86, when I was 22 years of age, so that was going to be the, the finest season of my career, but but that's the way it turned out. Because as a footballer, you know, you, you finish 85, 86, winning the double, going to the World Cup with Denmark, and everybody goes, wow, can it get any better? But as a footballer, you think, yeah, of course he can. Of course, yeah. There's, there's, there's better things around the corner, I'll improve, blah, blah, and he'll go on. Uh, it, it, it didn't, 85, 86 is, is, is the one season. But of course, the way it started, because Liverpool had gone from probably being the most admired club in Britain, you know, everybody used to look at them and go, love the way that they play. We love the way that they go about their business. It's a very humble football club. And then, of course, after Heisel, people sort of looked at us in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. So it was almost as if the history of the football club had to be started all over again. How do we cope with this? The managers has, has walked out. Player managers, yes, was the, the done deal in those days, but surely not at a club like Liverpool. So how will all this work out? Uh, pretty quickly also during the season it was the end of, of some very fine Liverpool players it was the end of their careers Phil Neal Alan Kennedy uh, people who were moved on uh, so a, a, a young manager stood with a football club that had been involved in, in high school with a lot of young players who, who'd never proved anything in, in, in the English game so you know it was it was probably a much bigger achievement for Kenny than anyone else ever give him credit for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said earlier, yourself, probably Beersley, Barnes, and, and, and obviously Kenny were the guys that, like, I idolized at the time and, and have continued to do so. And Kenny, I suppose, specifically, because it's such a history with the club, I'd be, I'd, I'd be missing an opportunity if I didn't ask you to, to, to give me some feedback on how you rated him. Just let's, just say as a footballer. I mean, you got, you got a chance to play with him, I suppose. It was very much at the tail end, but, you know, he did score the goal that wins the league and all that kind of stuff. He was still very much like you talked about with Cruyff, a fella who had, everything still uh, in terms of technique well it's 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 the thinking man's footballer isn't it it's yeah. it's it's spotting the things that nobody else sees or certainly spotting the things before everybody else sees them and and that was his ability uh, you look at the way that liverpool did that all british teams in those days played 4-4-2 but liverpool never liverpool played 4-4-1-1 they, they they had a number 9 
they, they used to run away from the ball into space and they used to have a, a sort of a number 10 who used to come towards the ball, which in Liverpool's days was the number seven. He used to drop deep, receive the ball and then play them into space. Uh, and, and, and Kenny was incredible at that, dropping deep, getting the ball into feet, then putting the ball into space where Rushy, Rushy wanted the ball into space. Mm. That was his strength. Strikers after John Aldridge wanted the ball into space. Robbie Fowler, the ball into space. Michael Owen, you know, you have different type of strikers, isn't it? But Liverpool always made sure that they had a striker who wanted the ball into space because they knew that that was probably the one thing that set Liverpool apart from all the other great teams. It, it was the way that we played into a front man that dropped deep and then in, into space. Whereas a lot of other clubs played with one pass. And we always used to say at Liverpool, if you get beaten by one pass, you're not doing your job. Yeah. So we yeah. used to just shorten the game a little bit. So you could have a you could have a fullback playing it into me, and then I'd play it into Rushi, or you could play it into Kenny, and then Kenny would play it into to Rushi. So you gave the opposition a little bit more to think about, and I think that was the big difference between Liverpool and all the other teams. I think that's very true, and I think it was the only time it's been almost replicated was with um, uh, Gerrard playing in behind Torres for that one season where they were incredible together as, as two oh eight, two oh nine. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, since. If you talk about the one team that should have won the league, oh, that's the team. Oh wow, yeah, absolutely, that's the team. Yeah, but but, but to, to focus on something that you said, like Kenny tells you, yeah, absolutely, you go and get your chance. We want you here. We want you to play. You're going to get a chance to play. You'll have to slightly adjust it role. But the thing he says to you as a kind of a caveat is you're going to need to score more goals. Now, unless I'm mistaken, yeah, is it 19 goals you scored that season? 21. 21, uh, 21 goals from, from, from midfield. That's incredible. 21 in all competitions. Uh, it, it, it sort of got off to a, to a good start early on in the season. Scored a goal down at, at Aston Villa, a late equaliser 2-2. And after that score, as, as I said, I scored late in the game and we got a penalty, sort of last minute. Yeah. And Phil Neal was our penalty taker. And Phil didn't take it. Rushy stepped up and took it and missed. And you know that, you know when something sticks in your mind and I'm going, why not Phil? I mean, Phil had an incredible record from the penalty spot and, and Rushy was never the penalty taker. So, you know, when I later became a penalty taker, that was kind of, I was putting them together. Yeah. I was thinking, Phil seemed to be sort of prepared to give away his role as a penalty taker. And there doesn't seem to be anyone who wants it because certainly 100% Rushy was now the penalty taker. Kenny never took penalties. So there was an opportunity there for me. So when in a couple of weeks' time we played against Spurs at home and Phil Neal kind of declared that if we get a penalty there against Spurs and my big buddy Ray Clements is in goal, I would rather not take them. So I went, here, here, I'm the man. You know, give them to me, give them to me. You know, not thinking we were going to get any, but we got two. Yeah. Uh, and I scored both. And even Ray Clemens after the game said he got the shock of my life. He said, Liverpool get a penalty. I'm expecting my big buddy Phil Neal to walk walk up. I've seen him take 100 penalties. I know where he's going to put him. He said, and up steps Jan. He said, I've never t- seen him take a penalty. So the 21 goals, the penalties had a big part to play. But also pretty quick in that season, I became the free kick taker. And I've never had a problem with responsibilities. I enjoyed taking free kicks. I enjoyed taking penalties. And then, of course, uh, they then bought Steve McMahon as a defensive midfield player uh, to play alongside me which I have to be honest that certainly didn't do me any harm yeah absolutely well one of the sort of most underrated in retrospect players ever McMahon wasn't he I mean like the the kid was 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 just a ball of energy really and and then such a combative presence there like that will complement your game I think perfectly right I think it's sometimes difficult, isn't it? Because we've had so many fine players and everybody likes players for various reasons. Yeah. And sometimes when we talk about great players, McMahon is overlooked. But Steve McMahon was a wonderful player. He was really competitive, which there was, there was plenty of room for in the British game in those days. Uh, but he was also technically very fine player and he was a great goal scorer. So if anyone ever says to me he was never that much, Steve McMahon was a, was a fantastic footballer and, I have a lot to thank him for. He certainly didn't do me any harm when he came in. He enhanced my game. And, you know, it's all about partnerships and all being, being able to trust each other, isn't it? And there's nothing like looking over your shoulder and go, A, he can do his job, uh, which he could, but also B, if he has to look after you, I know he will because he understood his role. I understood mine. Uh, and I think that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it would be silly of us not to just return to that subject of the penalties just for a second because it could get lost in the midst of time there. And I, I do believe your penalty scoring, um, uh, record is like 42 penalties for Liverpool in total. Isn't that correct? 
Yeah, I took 45 penalties at Anfield and I've scored 42. Good um, Lord, good I Lord. Actually missed, I actually missed two in that 85-86 season in a league game at Anfield against Sheffield Wednesday with Drew 2-2. Mm. Uh, but much more costly in a semi-final in the League Cup against Queen's Park Rangers when we drew 2-2 at Anfield as well. I missed a penalty in that game. And then in 1989, down on Stamford Bridge, uh, we beat Chelsea 5-2 and it was almost like an exhibition match and we got a penalty late in the game. And You know, it's the only time I've ever... I can look back and I thought, oh, I took that penalty a bit too easy. We were winning 5-2. The goalkeeper for Chelsea at the time was Dave Besson, who, of course, had saved that penalty against John Aldridge at Wembley. Mm. And, and I really wanted to put the ball where John put it at Wembley, just so I could say to Aldo, that's how you do it. <laughs> uh, Brilliant. <laughs> but, of course, Dave Besson had read that, hadn't he? Yeah. So I went to the goalkeeper's left and I went off the ground, which I never did. But it is what it is. Yeah, but but I mean, it, it's a stunning record overall, Jan. I mean, it's, it, I, I think Letizier is is famed for his, but I mean, that yours must be right up there alongside as the as the as the. Best. I often look, I often look at my penalty record, and I think, well, in my time at Anfield, uh, John Aldridge scored seventeen or eighteen penalties when I was there. Yeah, I know that John Barnes took fourteen and scored ten. And I, if if I'd have been fit in every game at Liverpool, I took every penalty. I'd have probably ended up with a hundred, having took a hundred at least. I don't know how many I would have scored. That's it. You could have it blitzed was, it, yeah, yeah. It was an incredible amount of penalties that we had. You know, yeah. at John's fourteen and all those seventeen or eighteen, there's another thirty to add to my forty uh, odd, isn't it? And I know that Mark Walters took some penalties, Mike Mars, Phil Neal took some. It could have been close on a hundred penalties in in the in the years I, that, that I was at Anfield. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible stuff. Could you imagine that? Yeah, yeah Moby took 102 penalties and scored 99. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, 42 well, from 45 will have to do. To be fair, man, I don't think you can have anything but, <laughs> but, but pride about that particular record. It's fantastic. Uh, it, it, obviously, the season culminates with with uh, with with a, a league and cup double. It really mattered then. It was something, you know. Uh, there was only a couple of clubs who'd done it. It was really something. I, I was the proudest little Irish fella going. It was so, so important, I think, that people, because United sort of made a habit of it then in, in, in preceding years, it, it sort of got a little bit diminished. But it was a massive thing. Like, were, were the players uh, totally aware of the enormity of that achievement at the time? I think Liverpool as a football club back in those days were very calm. They were yeah. very calm about big games. They were very calm about trophies. Uh, but I did sense in 85, 86... And I don't know whether it had anything to do with the heisel and the fact that it was Kenny's first season. But people were getting really, really excited. And let's not forget the FA Cup had not been won since 1974, which meant that every single player in that squad, and you mentioned it before on some very fine players, none of them had ever won the FA Cup before. Yeah. So that in itself creates some, some excitement. But the big thing, the big deal, was of course that it was Everton. Yeah. It was Everton who finished second in the league. It was Everton who beat in the FA Cup final. And let's not forget that probably between 1984 and 1987, Liverpool and Everton were the two best teams in Europe. Of course. So, so that's how big it was. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely massive. And I no, don't what th- I'm saying is that you can go to Wembley and beat Sunderland. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But there's no real history, is it? Yeah. yeah. Or you can beat Everton. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Which, and at a time, when you speak to any Evertonians and they'll go 85, 86 or 84 to 87 was probably just about the finest period in their history. Yeah. But right in the middle, right in the middle of all that, we, 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 we go and do what Liverpool incredibly have only ever done once, which is win the double. Well, that, that side of theirs, like, not that we want to spend too much time talking about the Blues, it was incredible. It was a stupidly good side. It was just brilliant. And like you say, it was either you or them for three seasons or four seasons. And, you know, if European competition had been a thing, would have been vying for European honours as well. It was that much of a, of a thing. You, then you add in the local rivalry and that gives it that spice. So for you to step up then in that FA Cup final, which is the pinnacle, the league's won, you know, Kenny's, Kenny's goal seals the deal at, at Chelsea and at Stamford Bridge and to, to go and win the FA Cup final then in the way that you did, it was with a bit of a swagger, you know, there was, you were involved in all three goals, uh, two assists and, and, uh, and involved it with a really crucial pass for, for the third goal, for Rushy's second. I mean, that's, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a performance right there. Were you, were you particularly, did you have that feeling you mentioned earlier on where you, you go, yeah, I'm on it today? 
the, the, the dream as a, as a young footballer is, is, is to play in an FA Cup final. Uh, and then beyond that, you would like to win the game. And then from a personal point of view, you'd like to have a performance that people remember. And I think that all those three, as far as I'm concerned, was, was achieved. We won the game. Uh, we got to Wembley. And then there was a little bit for me, wasn't it? But it wasn't evident, I think, early on, because it was a very tough game. Everton liked to make it tough. Bracewell and Reed midfield, and they were never going to give you an inch. So you had to wait. And that is exactly what we said at half time. We were getting beat 1 0. And that is exactly what the coaching staff said. Be patient, be patient, be patient. We know we've got the qualities. If we get the opportunities, we know we're going to take them. And we just had to wait. And I think we had to wait to the 57th minute uh, till Rush chugged uh, around Bobby Moose and equalised 1 1. And then it was just as if we all looked at each other and went, come on, guys, we've done this before. Mm. This is what we do. We get to big games, we win these big games. As mm. good as the opposition is, and they were very, very good. But this is what we do. Let's get it sorted. So we score another quick two goals. Uh, Rush gets another one. Craig Johnson gets one. But if you ever look at the game again, I was clean through, hit it with a left foot. Bobby Mims saves. Rushy late on his through where he tries to chip Bobby Mims, which could have been his hat trick. So in the end, the way you, you, you described it before, as good as they were, in the end, we won that match out of cancer. Yeah. We won 3-1, but should have probably won 5-1. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... And very, very, very modestly, you, you kind of glossed over your contribution there. Like, like I say, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be, that needs to be, uh, pointed out. Cause God, I mean, that the pass for Rushy, you just said, yeah, Rushy took around Bobby Mims, but it was a, just this delightful through ball from yourself. And then you're involved with the ball across the box that Johnson scores from. Yeah. That's the only, that's the only thing. I mean, I think people can see the ball for Rush, uh, through Mountfield's legs and the pass. Uh, to Vanden Howe's legs late on for Whelan to run onto yes. with, without being big-headed, but of oh. course completely changed that counter-attack because from where Everton think Van, Vanden Howe's got Jan. Yeah. And it, this, it, this thing about, isn't it, find a solution, bang, here you are, Ronnie, totally different game, where all of a sudden we're playing three against one. Yeah. Rush, yeah. Douglas and Whelan, it can only end in one thing, which was a goal. The one thing that sometimes I discuss with people is that second goal. You know, where people think it was a shot. It was never a shot. Uh, because from that angle, it would have been impossible to shoot at the goal because the defender would have blocked uh, mm. the shot. Mm. So the only way I could get the ball across would be through his legs. So I had to wait for Gary Stevens to open his legs before I could fire it across. The, 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 it was fired into an area where I trusted that either Kenny or Rushy would be. Kenny was there, tried to flick that didn't work. But also, always, and I mean always in those situations, the wide man on the opposite side would always make it into the penalty area as a third striker. Yeah. And that was Craig, that was Craig Johnson. So when Kenny missed it and it came through at the far post, as you always expect, if it had come from the other side, it had been Ronnie Whelan. But the fact that it came from the left across to the right, there was Craig. And yeah. he sort of stumbled a little bit over it because it was a hard hit cross. Mm. So he kind of sort of, but I think that helped him. That it was a lot of pace on the cross. You know, he had nothing to think about, and he sort of just got a foot turn and, and he rolled in. And you, know, you talk about the elation, and you were a young boy back in Ireland all those day, days ago. But but the elation for Craig Johnson, who ran around at Wembley screaming, "I've done it! I've done it! I've done it!" Yes. And yeah. by that by by that he was thinking, you know, he was thinking Australian in an FA Cup final, scoring a goal. And at that time, he looked like he was going to be the winning goal. So. It, it it meant so much for, for for so many people. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, like you say, there's a whole story in 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 his admirable efforts. But it, I I I hope people because when Gags informed me that you were going to be good enough to do this interview, I went back and sort of binged on all the the highlights of like I say when I was in there for watching watching uh, you guys doing what you do and being as good as good as you were and. Something that strikes me just about that game before we let it go, your beautiful ball through to Ronnie Whelan. I know at the time, even I can remember even now, as a kid even, I was a youngish fella, I remember shouting at the television going, give it to Kenny, because Kenny seems to be the most obvious pass, and he hits it across to Rusty, who of course doesn't miss. But it was one of those moments where I was going, give it to the man, for God's sake. Do you do you call in, in, the, in actual real time thinking that he picked the right option or the wrong option? I suppose it's never... No, right. I I, I thought straight away that it was the, it was the right option. I mean, you, you you often see a counter attack and you think there's the ball, there's your easy ball, isn't it? Yeah. But as a as a footballer, you you very quickly work out which pass is going to give the opposition the most trouble. 
Yes. So yeah. the opposite you pass is very often not the right pass. Yeah. You know, you have to give them maximum trouble with your pass. And, and, and that is exactly what Ronnie did. Because I think if Ronnie would have given the ball to Kenny, Everton defensively would have still been in a great position. But once he was lifted to the far post for Rushy, they were all, and I mean all of them, were out the game. And it was only left to Rushy to do what he always did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was, and like you say, it's never a bad option to be passing the in rush. Let's be honest. But, but do, do you think that season in particular, and maybe you haven't seen a little bit of 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 the way that Cruyff was earlier? Do you think that might have influenced you when you made a decision later on in your career in nineteen ninety five? I think it was to to take the player manager job at Swansea. Was it something you thought? Well, yeah, you know what, I can do this. I've, I, you know, I've got I've got that skill set. I haven't given any thought. Uh, I think as a footballer, you you, you know that. Anytime beyond 32 years of age, it can be over from one day to another. But yeah. I hadn't given any thought because you think, well, we'll, we'll take one day as it comes. But I went to Norwich on loan. Uh, and just before I went to Norwich, 48 hours before I went, Martin O'Neill resigned uh, as the manager. And they installed Gary Mexon as a caretaker. And Gary, to be fair, was brand new in a job and he didn't know. And I helped him out with some coaching uh, as well as playing. I helped him out with some coaching. And at the end of the month, he said, you should give it some thought. He said, I, he said, I think you've got a nice way uh, with your coach and you've got a nice way with the players. And you know when you get something in your head? Yes, yeah. And that kind of did it for me. And I thought, okay. And then I was given the opportunity as once, which in hindsight was, was totally the wrong thing to do. I was 32 years of age. I should have continued to play, uh, but I decided to become a player manager. I should never have gone to a team who was on the brink of getting relegated to, to what in those days was the fourth division. Uh, because the the way back to the top was simply too long. Yeah. Having said that, I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah. It was it was kind of real football. It's kind of where I started, you know, when I was back home in Denmark and I'd seen it all before and the lack of facilities and all them things was never an issue to me. I enjoyed every minute of it. But if I had aspirations, and I did, I had aspirations of making it back to the top as a manager, then I should have waited for the better opportunities in Swansea. And being honest, Jan, you did sort of really make a real success of it too. I mean, you were so close to, 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 to promotion there with, with Swansea when you, you know, at, at, at such an early stage of a managerial career as well. Yeah, as I said, we, I, I came down, I had 15 games in, in, in the third division and we were destined. Uh, I think we were 20 points behind everybody else. Uh, we got relegated and, and I rebuilt the team. I introduced a lot of young Welsh players, uh, Yes, I have to be honest, I built the team around me because I thought, not saying that I was our best player, but I was certainly the one who could maybe influence games more than anyone else. So I built a way of playing that would suit me. Uh, we managed to get to Wembley in the playoff final, lost to Northampton 1-0. Uh, and then in the summer that followed, we, we got new owners. And once the new owners came in, I knew the writing was on the wall. It was only a matter of time before they were going to sell me. Uh, sorry, sack me. First, we sold all the players, uh, left with with a load of youngsters and then they, they, they sacked me but I don't have a problem with that that's their prerogative they did what they thought was right yeah yeah it strikes me and as we as we work our way through this that um at some stage um if you're if you you ever find yourself um with the free time again we're just gonna have to do a part two here because okay. I'm I'm listening I'm, I'm listening to this I'm sure everybody's just got their ears pinged back because it's just it's brilliant to get this kind of insight and we're still only at 1986 yeah you know, to, 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 to bring this this um, particular show to a bit of a close if we if we could just look at the years between say that and 1990 you know the as you said earlier on, it's it's Liverpool and Everton. It's either or for the league. It's a lot of success and and and, and a lot of nearly moments for uh, over those years. Um, eighty six, eighty seven. I think basically y you start as a regular. You're you're, you're going great. Um, um, there's a bit of a rejig then when you you get injured and 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 uh, in nineteen in the summer of eighty seven and sort of yes. What happened? What, what happened was eighty six, eighty seven, and I never thought this was going to be the case. But it was really difficult because of the World Cup. Yes, of course. I just never, ever, it, I just didn't think coming back from the World Cup, I started the season and I wasn't the only one because other players had been in the World Cup and I never thought it was going to be a big problem. But it was. I got tired in sort of December, January. Um, so I didn't expect that. And then in the summer of 87, uh, in, in, in a friendly kickabout we had down at the training ground, John Walk, unfortunately, stood on my foot. I broke a metatarsal. Uh, and then the season starts and John Barnes is introduced on the left and Ray Houghton on the right and Peter Beatty and John Aldridge 
and then Ronnie Whelan was partnered up with, with Steve McMahon in the middle. There's no doubt in my mind that if I'd have been fit, it'd have been Steve McMahon and me in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but he gave Ronnie Whelan an opportunity, and Ronnie moved in, which played central, and he was absolutely fantastic. And then when I came back, and the broken bits of tiles, and it normally takes three months, took nearly seven months because I rebroke it. Uh, so it took me nearly seven months before I came back and couldn't then get in the team. And then the following season, 88, 89, I sort of became play anywhere. You know, yes, I played yeah. centre half, I played right back. Barnsley was injured, I played wide left. Uh, and it took a while before I sort of got back in uh, to playing centre midfield again. So as much as we were great, the team was fantastic. It certainly wasn't as much about me. It was more about the likes of Barnsley, Barnsley and whatever. Yeah, pro- probably not as enjoyable a period as it could have been for you because well, I don't know, I don't know. I just still, you know, it was still privileged to be at Liverpool, and yeah. you know, whenever I played, I still thought, you know, again, I don't want to sound big-headed, but I thought, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm playing well. You know, I, I, I just didn't see it was still going well. And centre half, I found playing centre half really easy, reading the game. You know, I wasn't a over physically centre half, but I read the game and I used to pinch the ball and I used to enjoy playing out from the back. So I, I, I still think as, as much as I never played in my favourite position, I never played as many games as I would have liked. I still thought that whenever he introduced me, Kenneth, that I, that I did quite well. Yeah, and as I say, to play in all those positions that you were re- introduced into, Jan, as well, uh, centre-half and sweeper and, like you say, all the various positions across the midfield, it was like uh, like the, the, the first year in Ajax back all over again. Now, apparently, you're going to be good enough to keep talking to us for another little while, so what we're going to do here is we're going to end this particular part of the chat, and we'll call this part one. And, uh, Jan, I believe you're uh, happy enough to, to continue to talk to us for another few minutes. Trevor, we still have a story to tell, so let's do it. That's brilliant. I love to hear that. So, for now, we will end this part one of our of the interview with Jan Morby. Podcast Network.